Welcome to another episode of Today's Lesson, a Nick Cave podcast. I'm Andrew. And I'm Sean. And today we'll be talking about uh, the fifth album in the career of Nick Cave. It's called Tender Prey. And we'll also be talking about the first track from the album, one of the Stone Cold classics of Nick Cave's discography, The Mercy Seat. Iconic. Iconic song. Sean, how you doing? I am doing wonderfully. I am I am beyond thrilled to get into this phase of the seeds discography. Uh beyond thrilled to be talking about the Mercy Seat. Such such a foundational song to the Seeds repertoire and one that seen live multiple times, heard covers of, you know. Yeah, no, I'm I am overjoyed at this moment in time. Andrew, you feeling okay today? I'm I'm over the moon. I love this love this period, uh, like you said, of, of Nick Cave's career. Uh, this is a great song. Um, yeah, I heard it live. I think both times we saw him. I think it's it's pretty much a, a mainstay of uh, you know all incarnations of this band's uh, live sets. Yeah, it's a good day to be a Nick Cave fan. Hell yes. Uh, so where, I guess let's let's get right into it. Where are we at on this album coming in, uh, generally speaking? Yeah, so we are now four albums deep. This is this is the fourth studio. No, sorry, f- five albums deep. We're four albums deep on the podcast, but five in total, um, counting "Kicking Against the Pricks," the uh, Seeds cover album. But we've gone through now from her to eternity. The firstborn is dead. Kicking against the pricks and your funeral, my trial, and we are landing squarely on tender prey with you know a new sound. I think I think a more refined sound. We're getting into a more subtler seeds, as I said last time. Your funeral, my trial was the first thing that sounded to me kind of like you know a seeds album, a, a distinct sound. It's still eclectic. It's still diverse. They still have you know these fantastic musicians from all manner of backgrounds but we're we're now in a phase that things start picking up and this is really what i consider the meat of uh the discography from here on out yeah i think i think for me it's it's the most um seeds like i think as you mentioned your funeral my trial kind of starts to bring us into a more you know more of what we think of of this band and i think this album for me is still pretty unrefined i think the the production on this album and 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 you know we'll kind of re reanalyze recontextualize things as we listen through this time i think this album kind of sounds really poorly uh recorded really poorly produced and yet it is the softer seeds you know it, it there's more uh more dynamics on this album there's some 
tinny sounds, really kind of heavy uh, songs where I think instead of going for more of a balanced production style, they really lean into kind of going for, you know, like with the Mercy Seat, more of a harsh uh, sonic tone um, as opposed to more even-keeled kind of thing. So that, I think, is one of the album's greatest strengths and weaknesses uh, for me coming in, um, is that very diverse, uh, lyrically, sonically, stylistically, but a little little rough around the edges compared to what we'll we'll see going forward. Yeah, no, that that definitely resonates. You know, it's it's a big, I think, step up from, you know, from her to eternity and firstborn is dead, which are um very raw. Yeah. Those, I mean, they're the whole songs built around the concept of being raw. Um and here, yeah, it's I don't know if it's finding their footing, but I, I totally get what you're saying about the uh tinny sound. It's the sort of thing that when uh, listening to the B-sides, there's a lot of uh, acoustic versions of songs on here. And they have, you know, Deanna and the Mercy Seat and all that. And it just sounds so much richer. It sounds so much fuller. And yes, and it's so much rounder. And when you hear them live, the songs sound entirely different. And it's not something I usually think about too much. So thank you for bringing that up. But um, no, I, I completely agree. The sound, the musicality of it is is there. And that's really what I was kind of focusing on. But the production is, it's odd. It's not... Um, it's not quite there yet. We're going to see a big leap on the next one when we get to The Good Son. Um, I think that there's a big leap in that in that department. Yeah, definitely. And I, I also think that uh, despite Your Funeral, My Trial not being my favorite album, I think that album sounds a lot better <laughs> than this one just uh, production-wise. But um, yeah, I, I would say coming in, this is probably, this is probably my favorite album uh, as a whole that we've talked about. And, and maybe the most important. Um, but we'll see how we feel at the end of everything. I was going to say, spoiler alert, but we do reserve the right to change these opinions at any time. Um, I will agree with you, though. This is, <laughs> I think right now, my favorite of, of the first four. And interestingly enough, for the longest time, I, for whatever reason, whether uh, it was just the oldest one I was listening to at the time or I was actually just ignorant of reality, uh, I thought that this was the first Seeds album, and um, I was, I don't know, I don't remember the moment that I learned that it was not, but uh, <laughs> longest time I held that in my head, and it still kind of sits as uh, a rebirth of sorts, um, a sort of, you know, new phase for them where the first three are, are working out a lot of kinks, trying to find that sound, and finally we have, you know, them bursting on with this. When I listen to it, it still feels like the genesis of what's to come, the the actual point of genesis that the seeds you know are birthed from um which you know to kind of jump into the song is is perfect for something like the mercy seat because topically that's kind of what we're dealing with we're dealing with you know death and contemplating rebirth or what happens after absolutely yeah um yeah new phase for the band this this was definitely one of the um yeah, I think this was the first of his older albums I came to after Avatar Blues um, slash The Liar of Orpheus, kind of working my way backwards. And this is kind of one I landed on and, and stuck with. I think uh, especially the first half of this album is really strong um, and diverse. And it was uh, this was sort of my first foray into to early cave. So definitely uh, kind of feels like a, 
a beginning of sorts in a lot of ways, uh, you know, objectively and subjectively. Yeah, no, and and like you said, I love I love this whole album, but the first half you have a run like um, Mercy Seat, Up Jump the Devil, Indiana, and that's just that's a classic album. It's it's over by track three. It doesn't matter what's on the rest <laughs> of it, really. Uh, Up Jump the Devil was one of the ones that just hooked me immediately, and I think that that's what latched me onto the album. And that that strikes me as kind of a we'll talk about it obviously next time, but kind of in the same vein as the Carney or what we're going to see later on murder ballads. And it was that dark, weird, um, heavy piano and God, jauntiness, just, the <laughs> jauntiness. Oh my God. And the shriek, like the, that's what I find the refinement in is the shrieking. There's such a good shriek laugh in that song <laughs> and it just haunts you. It just sticks with you. And so when I think of this album, I think of definitely those three tracks first. Um, so a little bit of background about the album. Tender Prey was recorded in West Berlin in 1988, uh, produced by Flood, as I believe all the albums before have been. There were some lineup changes uh, for this era. Mm. As we talked about last time uh, with the last album, uh, Barry Adamson departed the band uh, over the course of of Your Funeral, My Trial, um, only worked on a couple songs there. So we've added uh, two permanent kind of touring recording members and then a, a guest musician for this album so still have the core of nick mick harvey blixa uh thomas fiedler but now we've added kid congo powers um i believe the first american to play with the group uh, listeners can correct me though he played with punk groups in la new york city and london joined the band in berlin and contributes uh, guitar throughout this album and the next one then we have roland wolf he contributes uh, guitar, piano, and organ throughout the album. Passed away in 1995 uh, from a car accident uh, shortly after leaving the band. Um, and then finally, Hugo Race, ex-birthday party member, appears as a guest musician here but didn't tour. He contributes uh, backing vocals to Mercy and guitar to this song, The Mercy Seat, as well as Watching Alice. Oh. Um, you might remember him from... Uh, touring with them around the time of From Her to Eternity and co-writing the title track from that first album. So a lot of moving pieces, new members, new faces, bigger bigger band, bigger lineup. You know, you even see it in the, in the video for this song, which we'll get into, but uh, widely expanded beyond the classic group of, of four or five. In 1998, 10 years after this album's recording, Cave had this to say about the album. It was a nightmare, that record. It is reflective of a group, particularly myself, who was just writing songs and there was no larger idea behind it. Sometimes some of the group was there, sometimes they weren't. I hear bad production and I hear bad performances as well. Um, he <laughs> later admitted that the album uh, was made at a difficult time in his life uh, when things were, quote, spiraling out of control in a lot of areas. Damning, damning words. (laughs) Very. Oh my God. It's, it's bizarre to hear stuff like that because you dig into something like we're going to talk about the mercy seat and to hear that there's like no greater purpose behind it. He's just like, I just was writing it to write it. Like, what the fuck? What are you talking about? (laughs) Well, I don't know that he thinks that about the song in particular, but I think, you know, there's none of these songs really flow together. Fair, in any particular way. I, I I think that's kind of one of the album's strengths, but 
I mean, I definitely hear that on your funeral, my trial, a bunch of disconnected ideas. Um, I don't really hear bad production on that album like I do here, though. But the performances sound sound great to me. Yeah, no, I would, this album is fantastic. And I think that there's there's so much to dig into. And it always makes me question digging into things like this, because when I hear the the author, when we call upon the author to explain and he says, oh, I just shut that out any of these songs. I mean, some of them are, are deeper than others, obviously, but uh, it's just, it's interesting to hear. It's, I don't know, I have to imagine that there's, that that's not entirely true, even if it's subconscious, that there was, you know, larger ideas at play that, that produced something um, like what we see on this album. That's funny. Yeah, and it could always be an uh, instance of an artist, you know, moving to a new phase, you know, at that time he was about to do Boatman's Call and was just kind of like, oh, that heavy stuff that everybody likes, well, eh, it's not that great. Yeah. I agree with him about the production on it, we'll get into it with this song, but I think um, sometimes that kind of stuff can really hold uh, songs back from becoming ear earworms or becoming classic, uh, classic pieces. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's fair. And especially yeah, the retrospective, I hadn't thought of that, but there are a number of things. I mean, just the seeds themselves coming from the birthday party. A lot of the birthday party stuff is just so, you know, foundational to the goth scene and all that. And I think that there was a, an attempt to distance themselves with the seeds. And it's interesting yeah. to hear them talk about that sometimes where it's just like, come on, dude, <laughs> it's great. What are you talking about? It's all good stuff. You know, it's all good stuff. We love we love it all. We're we're the yeah. perfect fans. That's flawless. I do. I do want to interject. My Spotify Wrapped came out, and uh, oh shoot, yeah, we should have talked about this at the from the jump. Yeah, what what did you find? So two interesting factoids, or three really. So your funeral, my trial was my number one listen to album, which is legit. I I dug into that very heavy. I liked everything on it, so I was listening to it for pleasure even after we recorded all the um, episodes. Yeah, uh, the Carney. It's my number one listened to song, and I don't know how that happened. <laughs> 39 times through, which is what fucking, I can't do That's that math in my 12 head. 12 days of your life. <laughs> exactly. I think I must have gone into a fugue state. Um, but I, overall, Nick Cave is my top listened to artist, and I am in the top 0.05% globally of everyone in the world, because everyone uses Spotify for all their music listening. I listen to more than 99.95% of people, which makes me eminently qualified beyond any anyone else to run this podcast. So just want the numbers to know don't that. lie. There is no one in a higher mathematically, no one in a higher uh, percentage than than that. I dare the person <laughs> at 0.04 to come forward. And we'll sort this out, but I'm not even sure they exist. I think we'll that that's shoot them just in the, the last number. <laughs> Whoever they are, we'll shoot them in the street. You're fucking marked. <laughs> Find me. Um, that's, yeah, my gauntlet has been thrown. That is extremely impressive, I must say. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's a lot of I effort. did. I did make a top 0.1% uh, this time. Very chuffed to to make it in, mostly because of listening for the podcast. Um, but yeah, going through these old albums, I, I did listen to a lot of them, you know, in rotation uh, for business and pleasure. <laughs> Congratulations to us. That's right. And just 
listeners, I know you knew this already. Every time you listen to the podcast, you know this. You just have to. But you're in good hands. We listen to so much Nick Cave. We do. We really put ourselves out uh, for your benefit. <laughs> um, <laughs> so moving on to this incredible first track. Now, maybe this song has been usurped at this point by you know Red Right Hand. But for a long time, I think this was kind of considered his his uh, magnum opus, um, or at least his his most you know notable song. I, yeah, I think Red Right Hand yep. has probably edged it out. Do you agree? Uh, I hear it in more places. You know, the fact that it's the Peaky Blinders theme, and I mm. think it was unused, but he did a version for the Scream Three soundtrack. It's 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 all over those movies. Certainly, the is it I haven't seen them so i just know from the b-sides but um i think that red right hand is certainly more prolific at this point however if you were to ask a cavehead what their opinion was namely me i would say that mercy seat is is far more important i Um, I absolutely would agree with you there i think that's a good way to frame it too um yeah this this is one of at least like the big three though i would say Oh, yeah. No. So, I mean, Red Right Hand, you can't, it's unassailable. That's everywhere. It's used, covered, I mean, with Peaky Blinders alone, it's been covered far more times than probably any of those songs. Um, And then Mercy Seat. And the third one, I think, that'd be an interesting conversation to have at some point. I'm not sure. Do you want to have it right now? Let's fucking do it. (laughs) No, I could not, I could not land on that right now. I'm not in the right headspace. You don't think it's, uh, Maybe where the wild roses grow? No, absolutely not. Hmm. Ah, uh, really? See, that's that's where this conversation is going to go. I don't think it's that at all. <laughs> well, we'll we'll litigate this um, at some point. Uh, but yeah, this this is definitely to basically, you know, sum the song up. It 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 really is his. I, I think you know defining moment uh, up to this point. Yeah. Oh, and and by far of the first four albums, I mean, from her to eternity is obviously up there, and that's still played a lot. And you know, there are certain songs that I have very strong opinions about on those albums, but this is there's no question. This is one that you know Johnny Cash eventually covers. This is one that that strikes one of Cave's heroes so immensely that um, he puts it on uh, the American recording. I think American Three, the man yeah. comes around. Yep, and um, you know huge honor for cave but well deserved i mean this song i we talked about this a while ago but i just remember it striking me um listening through this album for one of the first times it just it it felt like this song had always been this is one of those songs that you know <laughs> i listen to and it's just kind of immortal right out the gate it just feels like he's he's well it's gonna sound kind of stupid but he's like discovering it and writing it down rather than writing it himself because it's just yeah I, it's I, I'm I'm a loss. I'm at a loss for words. There's a there's a perfect word that'll probably end up screaming at the end of the podcast when I remember it. Um, well, just but, that idea uh, that maybe art is is you know comes through you as a gift from the gods. You know, that's kind of a yeah, sort of a a, it, a thing, right? Like a divine inspiration, sort of without really knowing where it comes from. Sometimes, like there's some songs where or pieces of art you can tell someone really you know, agonized over it or agonized over the words. And there's some stuff that just kind of, yeah, it seems like it's always been or just kind of comes from the void. And I, I definitely feel like this song is one of the latter. 
yeah sort of a sort of a platonic ideal becoming reality I, I don't see how this song could be any more itself or any any better perhaps uh apart from the production yeah definitely <laughs> um this song was written by cave and mick harvey yeah notably covered by cash um released as a single ahead of the full album's release uh with a video yes you got anything to say about this uh good video it's good i i appreciate the avant-garde art approach i appreciate the full band shot um this is perhaps the first video where he actually looks engaged with what's happening and everyone kind of looks like they're actually engaged with with the music um very intense very much you know he's putting on a persona and a character um go watch it he's he starts the video kind of sitting in a chair and and doing weird hand gestures that he he continues to do throughout his career and uh then kind of pans back to the band and so you get a very diverse mix of of um visuals and it's a it's a good embodiment of the song i i really do appreciate it it's not super remarkable to me but at the same time it's it's a very solid video for a very solid single uh, what are your feelings on it yeah, I fully agree. I like um, the shift between black and white and color when you see them performing versus him in the cell. I think it's yeah, I think it's just right, you know, for the song. It's not a standout. I'm I'm will go on record as saying I'm not a huge fan of a lot of uh, Cave's videos, but um, this one this one feels just right to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, the music, uh, the structure of this song is is very repetitious. There isn't much going on in terms of structure now you know different things pop up at different times um but there is sort of this like kraut rock repetitive you know desire to not actually have any verse chorus structure in terms of the music we really only yeah. get that kind of demarcation through the the lyrics and very strongly through the lyrics it's it's very the repetition becomes the song towards the end. Um, it reminds me a lot of Hard On For Love, I think, in that, yeah. in that structure. Um, but you're right, there's no there's no real central riff. We get a lot of noises and a lot of, you know, it's, it's echoey, it's spacious, it's metallic. It's all these things, but it hangs together without that sort of traditional song structure. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, it's it's basically, I mean, it basically is like kind of one riff that just doesn't really change, but then you have, you know, strings and lots of weird echoey guitar that sounds like it was recorded this song sounds like it was recorded through a tin can i'm just gonna say it i i think this song sounds <laughs> like shit uh production wise but it just it works so i don't want to take anything away from it i just think there's songs on this album that work better with the bad production like this should be and you're totally right on the live performances and acoustic versions which i listen to a lot more than this version kind of uh remedy that but man this song especially at the length it is with all the <laughs> noise going on it really is a cacophony and i don't think they necessarily captured it uh the best way they could have so i kind of kind of agree a bit with cave on that uh, front for this song at least yeah no it, it gets grinding towards the end and um i i've always taken that though not so much as a mark against the song perhaps the listenability of the song sure. um, 
but it I think plays well with the central themes. I think it plays well with the setting and you know the the speaker being who he is and what he's going through. I've always taken it as again, you know, a different way of approaching madness and a different way of approaching panic and a different way of approaching, you know, all of these things that the character is experiencing throughout the song. Um, and so as a song, I do really like both live and acoustic much better. And I like Cash's cover and everyone else has treated it kind of like, you know, a song that you'd like to listen to for an appropriate amount of time. Uh, but this original is just, it goes on so long and it's so abrasive and I've, I've always appreciated the recording for what it is. Um, even if it's not my preferred method of listening for pleasure. Yeah, th- those are yeah, those are good good uh, good counterpoints and a good way to frame it. Um, yeah, I, I guess yeah, we can get into the length right now. I mean, this song's too fucking long by like three minutes. <laughs> I, it's so fucking long, dude. How is it? How is this song such a? Cl- I mean, it's just it's such an undeniable piece of art. I guess that the production and time spent like at the end don't completely ruin it because i think those things are pretty bad um in harm's listenability but the song's just too good it's too undeniable for those things to you know stop what cave's trying to do and, and honestly cave's performance and his vocals uh are f- absolutely fantastic yeah yeah haunting is is the sort of thing where he plays it fairly monotone but given the lack of um, real melodic structure in the backing music, his voice really follows what little riff there is the entire time and, and mostly carries it. And so he's kind of the um, subtler subtler uh, melody that, that runs throughout. And he just has this, this gravitas, this disconnect, this, all this emotion in this almost emotionless voice throughout, um, which, again, just works so well with the subject matter works so well with this this man trying to come to terms with what's happening and what he's done and i just yeah that's always been that's always been very undeniable for me um and that he keeps it up i think the the last chorus starts at about two minutes 40 seconds and the song is like seven minutes long what a nightmare (laughs) god nightmare but it's so good (laughs) it's so good i know oh jesus not the last time you'll do something like this but this is certainly i i think the most enjoyable even if it's not that enjoyable the acoustic mm-hmm. version is only like three and a half minutes which is perfect absolutely they they oh if you haven't listened to those b-sides go go listen to those uh from this album especially the uh the mercy seat city of refuge deanna oh, oh so good my god God, and I think that I think B sides opens with those, so you don't even have to look for them. Just pop on the album and and listen away. Oh yeah, let's get into these lyrics. Sean, do you want to take the the uh, little intro that rises up from the uh, band checking their instruments, I guess, and making random noises portion of the song? Yes, there's there's clicking, there's weird whirring, there's there's all sorts of stuff that just fires up, but uh. Nick up the chair. In. That's right. They're getting it ready. And and Nick comes in with his with an intro befitting such an epic song, something reminiscent of uh, From Her to Eternity or such. But it began when they came, took me from my home, 
and put me in death row, of which I am nearly wholly innocent, you know, and I'll say it again, I'm not afraid to die. <laughs> and uh, that, yeah, sets us up for <laughs> some measure of failure, uh, sets us up for, obviously, a, a grim tale that we've heard a couple times before. Uh, but we now we now know the character, and we know, at least on the surface, what he feels about himself. Uh, Andrew, how does how does the song intro make you feel? How does this how does this get you in the mood for what's about to come? Well, it's very um, it's very coy, you know, of of which I'm nearly wholly innocent. Um, it it sort of tricks you. You don't really know how heavy you know things are going to become. It's kind of hard to to hear what he's saying. He's kind of mumbling, but looking at the lyrics on the page, it's great. It it gives you the setting right away. You know, you're already imagining you know this guy in on a death row cell. Nick's preoccupation with imprisonment, uh, perhaps justice, and uh, all around bad dudes uh, really coming bad into boys. play and being compressed into one very short little you know paragraph here. It's uh. It's perfect. It's a little ambiguous and, and a little coy. Yeah, no, we, we kind of get uh, all the story of a song like Longtime Man just, like you said, compressed into a single paragraph where we know this guy's on death row. We know what he thinks of himself. And, you know, that, you know, we're about to delve into at least partially the fear of what's about to happen to him, um, which, yeah, sets us up for some introspection for some you know hopefully more uh, more to think about than some of those more straightforward songs absolutely moving to verse one i began to warm and chill to objects in their fields a ragged cup a twisted mop the face of jesus in my soup those sinister dinner deals the meal trolley's wicked wheels a hooked bone rising from my food all things either good or ungood lot to unpack in this first verse yeah what do you what do you think about uh a lot of it is is setting but it also kind of contributes to what we maybe think about this character oh i and this is you know the the quick compact setup of the first verse um really has paid off immediately and that we get to dig into some of the weirder aspects of this guy's psyche and what he's going through and the just that I begin to warm and chill to objects in their fields is, um, you know, this guy has immediately kind of leapt into some sort of extra sensory perception that he starts to feel uh, now that he's in this situation. And it seems like he's trying to uh, apply some kind of morality to, you know, these objects that he sees everywhere that perhaps it, it seems like there's a revelation so that perhaps he hasn't done before. Um, you know, his, his chef Boyardee Bible owes, he is now taking the face of Jesus in noodle form as, you know, a big sign, which it's not, it's full of faces of Jesus and arcs and, uh, the Christian cross, but, uh, and Sonic the Hedgehog's face as well, <laughs> I believe is for, for a time that was a limited edition run when the movie came out, but, um, <laughs> he's, he's assigning good and ungood to these things that really have no morality associated with them um and you know we immediately dive into the biblical imagery here too the the ragged cup um is what if anyone has seen uh indiana jones 
we know that the ragged cup is the cup of Jesus at the Last Supper. It's the correct choice. Um, and perhaps he's, you know, using whatever biblical knowledge he has to kind of figure out what's in store for him or, you know, why things are the way they are around him um, from a from a moral perspective. And it just, it at, the, at this point, it's still kind of confused. I'm not entirely sure what to think. But uh, I, this verse is certainly, to me, on the scale of good to ungood, very good. Uh, what do you what do you think about the dinner deals and and the meal trolling and all that? Yeah, well, I'll get into that in a bit. I no, I really like what you had to say. I mean, he's to me, you know, objects and their fields. You know, you kind of have a field almost has like an electrical sort of connotation to me. Um, or magnetism, something, something that sort of, you know, you could tangentially relate to the mercy seat as we'll get into, but, um, yeah, I really like, yeah, the biblical imagery, the ragged cup, that's a great pull, you know, face of Jesus in my soup. I think there's a couple things going on here. Uh, we, I don't know, I've never been to a, a prison where there aren't many objects around, but, um, definitely been, you know, sick for a long time point of time and, and been laid up in bed or whatever you, know, you get your wisdom teeth out something like that but you know just being surrounded by you know a few objects or or the same view you know to quote cave himself the square foot of sky will be mine till i die you just sort of you know maybe you don't like this character personify or pass judgment on inanimate objects but you definitely become familiar with them and and they take on maybe more meaning than when you're you know, just going through a regular day-to-day thing. So I see, like, yeah. you know, he's been he's seen the soup so many times. It's probably all he gets uh, at this point. You know, a cup, a mop. These things are um, more personified to him, A, because he might be insane, B, because he's just been around them so long. Uh, you know, he began to warm and chill to them. He began to, in his head, kind of become this arbiter of morality um you know all things either good or ungood though he does seem to kind of have an ungood uh attachment to a lot of these things you know ragged cup twisted mop sinister dinner deals wicked wheels hooked bone from his food it, it kind of all seems ungood to me yeah you know the dinner deals or whatever being fed your last meal before going to you know the mercy seat is is basically the electric chair, as we'll we'll get into. I just realized we didn't really explain that uh, <laughs> as we go through, but uh, no sense Spoilers. in really reading it. <laughs> but yeah, meal trolley, wicked wheels. You know, you know when when your food's coming, uh, whether it's your last meal or your uh, Christian soup. But yeah, that's just a lot to unpack. A lot of great visuals there. Great imagery. Yeah. Yeah. Judgment, yeah. morality. Ah. Yeah, no, that that's right. And it actually just got me thinking, um, thinking about the dinner deals. It's it's the sort of thing where perhaps he's trying to find meaning in things that are tangentially intentional in that, you know, getting getting soup might have been something that he requested and made some kind of deal for. And so now he sees a sign in it as, you know, why did I do that? Um, the hooked bone rising from his food uh, could be 
seen as a hook, as we've seen many times, she, or, um, Cave refer to, or we will see, Cave refer to Jesus as a fish, as, you know, something um, being caught. And perhaps this man now feels like he is being caught. And at, at the end of it, he has been through, as we'll see, the ringer of, you know, morality, of judgment, of somebody calling him or, you know, what he's done, good or ungood. And for for a man who maybe hasn't thought of life in that way before, he is now resentfully trying to pass judgment on everything around him as a way of, of escaping what's been done to him or what he feels has been um, yes. you know, placed upon him by a system that he never understood or, or bought into before. Absolutely. Yeah, I really like that. Yeah, maybe the it's just part of the chain, chain of command. God passes judgment on us, you know, society. Uh, decides to in a sense bastardize that and and pass you know this moral judgment you know based on those teachings or perceived teachings um and then that's got this guy trapped and now he's passing it on to the only thing he has agency of uh you know a cup and a mop yeah yep and that brings us to the first of many choruses as as we heard he he will say it again um and the mercy seat is awaiting, and I think my head is burning. And in a way, I'm yearning to be done with all this measuring of proof of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In any way, I told the truth, and I'm not afraid to die. Mm. 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 Oh. <laughs> that is, that's striking. Yeah. Um, yeah, we'll get to know this, this section uh, quite well. The mercy seat is awaiting. I think my head is burning possibly possibly some electric chair imagery uh, yeah. can't be can't be certain debatable you know he is in a way yearning to be done with all the measuring of of proof you know he it, he's been doing it you know to these these objects and their fields um you know he's tired of of judgment as a concept almost it would seem here yeah Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. In any way, I told the truth. I'm not afraid to die. Here, he is confident or or outwardly confident that he told the truth and he's not afraid to die. Though, I think based on, obviously, stuff we'll get to, but stuff we've already read, you know, nearly wholly innocent. Uh, we need to take this with a, a grain of salt. Yeah, no, we do, and and a grain of salt, but also in in the context of him claiming immediately to be nearly wholly innocent, maybe that is the truth. You know, he can he can rest assured that he said all he needs to say, and Fair. you know he, in lie, he's not he's not wholly innocent. Uh, <laughs> it's actually funny that uh, Cash changes that in his cover and says, "Of which I am wholly innocent," and uh, <laughs> for all of caves, you know reverence for cash and how proud he was of him covering the song he actually says in an interview that uh, his version is better because of that change he said that it's better if the person says nearly wholly innocent you lose a lot of the of, of the meaning if you change that well well funny tidbit but um yeah and and here is the first time also i question because immediately when i when he says nearly wholly innocent not afraid to die it seems like two separate things here i'm wondering what the lie even is uh, because it is the truth that he's nearly wholly innocent or is the truth that he's not afraid to die? Um, and I will, will wrestle with that throughout. I think that, you know, 
we'll, we'll repeat this so many times and that's where kind of that madness and that panic comes in for me from from the length of this song is it's a man at the end of his life trying to wrestle with this um wrestle with this question and it's it's interesting to see him go back and forth and this is the first that we see it and he's very confident at this point that uh he i I think doesn't deserve what he's getting but knows knows that it's waiting for him yeah that's definitely definitely a way to to take it i i yeah i'm i'm not sure what the the truth is i i think he could be referring to both at this point eye for an eye tooth for tooth classic code of hammurabi reference here that's right you know uh, justice uh judgment character a reference a phrase you know very indicative of what uh, this character is going through right now now verse literally straight out of the book of leviticus uh this is this is a rule from you know that section of the bible that we've heard cave reference before i think he's very fixated on this but it, it yeah everybody really does know this but it's um something that the character is is again sick of because being on death row i think we can infer that he is likely murdered somebody or at least is accused of murdering somebody and uh, i'd be tired of eye for an eye too if uh, the state was holding me to that code after i killed somebody (laughs) Um, and at this point i also it's interesting i'm not sure if he is already in the chair because he thinks his head is burning or if he's still preparing for it and just kind of feeling um what he knows is about to happen if he's having physical sensations of, you know, this terror of putting himself in that place, um, waiting for the chair where he, he kind of feels his head is burning. And I really like what he said earlier of the, the objects when you're sick for a long period of time, you're holed up somewhere. I think that your mind kind of goes in a fever state and you start seeing things that aren't there. You start attributing things that you wouldn't normally attribute to things around you, get very comfortable with your surroundings and, and you know, assign them in this case morality but this is where it starts kind of striking me that he might be in somewhat of a fevered state too being where he is and and in the place that he is in the um, death penalty process and so this is yeah the first glimpse into perhaps a mind that is losing traction on reality and again not sure if he's if he's already going through it or is that just putting himself through it yeah we're, we're, we're unstuck in time and this isn't you know, necessarily a, a straight shot kind of uh, point yeah. A to point B kind of deal. But I think there's there's a good amount of a lot of those little things going on. Bring that that back the idea of of becoming accustomed to these different uh, objects uh, really does lead well into verse two. Interpret signs and catalog a blackened tooth, the scarlet fog, the walls are bad, black bottom kind. They are the sick breath at my hind. Uh, they are the sick breath gathering at my hind. You know, interpreting signs, cataloging them, perhaps uh, face of Jesus in your soup, hooked bone. You know, he's he's really fixated on these different. Uh, you know, maybe it's not just stuff he's seeing every day, but he he's just he has nowhere else to turn to. Not only you know look for you know stuff pertaining to morality or judgment, but he just doesn't have. I mean, he doesn't have a way out other than death at this point. So it's almost like someone's scrambling to make sense of life. <laughs> Just, you know, what do, what do I do before I go? Got to 
mentally write it down before I'm, you know, sent sent away to the great beyond almost. Yeah, this guy, you know, forced through instinct to try and assign meaning to things around him. And it, it strikes me that he is a person who has not done this before. And really, perhaps that's why yes. he's in this situation to begin with. Um, he's seeing all these things and, and finally, at the end of his life, trying to say, why am I here? What What is going on? What has put me here? Um, and it's also <laughs> it's also a way, I think, for someone in this position. We've seen case characters do this before try and project what they're feeling, the self-loathing um, that they're feeling for their actions or perhaps place blame for the things that they feel are out of their control on the things around them to try and, you know, catalog all these things happening and say, oh, of course, because, you know, classic conspiracy theorist, it's all these things, you know, the scarlet fog is coming in and this guy smiled and I saw his tooth. Um, you You string all that together and perhaps you have a better idea of why the world is working the way it's working when you when you don't agree with the way it's working yeah definitely i really like that a very very human character even though he's you know potentially another classic cave uh, unreliable narrator you know yeah. the walls are bad they're the sick breath <laughs> of my hind you know they're you know maybe this is the the person that's going to pull the switch you know the priest everybody watching um taking some kind of pleasure at this or not taking pleasure but just uh, you know feeling either power or just duty to uh to execute this person you know i think i think he, there is some truth to that um but it's also him yeah. projecting like you say yeah no and this this is very reminiscent of, of the phrase get behind me satan where you know jesus famously said to paul um, or was recounting something to Paul and basically said, you know, get away, get behind me, I'm going to leave you behind. Um, and for, for someone like this who perhaps is, you know, emulating Jesus in that way or, or taking that and twisting it in a way where it's not necessarily deliberately saying get behind me and, you know, I'm going to move on, it's simply putting off all of these things, all of these sick things that he's done, and it's it's accumulated into this breath that he now feels coming from the walls themselves. You know, he can never escape it. Wherever he is, this is following him, and it's it's demonic. It feels demonic in this in this phrasing that there's this breath that's always around him gathering and personified by the walls. And I really like what you said um, about everyone watching the the sick duty of the state to finally execute this person, regardless of what anyone there thinks, because it was mandated. Um, yeah, it's this is again very striking imagery and. Uh, a very human character for which I feel more empathy for um, simply because of that panic that he's clearly a little bit uh, exhibiting. Yeah. yeah. Comparatively. Uh, yeah. I think there is more, you can have a little more empathy here. Yeah. No, he's, he's feeling fear, which I think that has, that's been lacking in, in like um, long time man or knocking on Joe or, or someone like that. There's, well, he says he's not afraid, but there, there's clearly some sort of desperation um, building and, and trying to figure out what's happening that makes me empathetic to the situation, sympathetic to the situation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you want to take verse three? Yeah. Uh, so jumps into um, kind of regroups with the music here, mm -hmm. and it builds to um, a really underlying hum that drives this part forward uh 
And he starts with, I hear stories from the chamber, how Christ was born into a manger, and like some ragged stranger died upon the cross, and might I say it seems so fitting in its way, he was a carpenter by trade, or at least that's what I'm told. Delivered in such a way that just, these, these next three verses, I think, are my favorite of the song. Um, we fluctuate between this driving recounting, which is which is this, and then kind of a breakdown where he he gets a little more introspective, there's more piano, and then we go right back to this with the driving underlying guitar. Um, and I love I love the contrast of that. That's probably the most interesting musical thing that's happening in the song. Yeah, not what changing do you make? structurally, but changing in what's, you know, taking the 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 spotlight. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, what do you what do you make of these lyrics? Um, yeah, I mean it, it, just taking it as as what's on the page, I like um this idea of, you know, getting religion from prison, you know, a place where people have been judged. Now they read you know stories about judgment, stories about morality especially on death row, you know, stories from the chamber, potentially other inmates. I'm not sure what this, what the uh, logistics are of a death row, uh, <laughs> you know, but um, hearing stuff from, from priests. Um, but yeah, basically just finding religion in, in prison and, you know, that, or at least that's what I'm told, you know, kind of, uh, you know, he's being inundated with this sort of religion. This probably wasn't something he found. Uh, naturally before he got here um yeah yeah and he seems he seems to be taking it pretty seriously he's you know recounting this stuff and i think that this um learning that at the end of your line after you've done all this stuff and you're about to pass to the great beyond um might be a big source of his panic in that if he's if he's hearing this and kind of taking it at all seriously I'd be kind of worried, depending on what part of the Bible I was reading, about what it is I had done, and I'm a little more worried about whether or not I'm really telling the truth when it comes to, um, again, what I what I had done. Um, the stories from the chamber, I think, is really interesting, too, because when I hear the chamber, it strikes me as the room in which the... Um, execution takes place which mm -hmm. if i've learned anything from movies there's usually a priest in there reading from the bible while it happens right um and so perhaps that's what he's hearing or if you want to take this a little supernaturally i it, it's a great scene to set if he's in his cell and he just kind of hears this shit whether it's actually being said or not he's heard it and it's kind of forming into this uh, message that's actually emanating from either the chamber in his mind or actually from down the hall, he's just, again, in this fever state and hearing all this weird biblical shit coming out of this room in which he's about to be killed um, and trying to, again, make sense of what it is he's hearing, making that connection between Jesus being a carpenter and, you know, living by the wood and dying by the wood. That's <laughs> that's not actually that interesting, but given that we know this character is trying to make these connections, it's, you know, he's he's trying to deal with what he finds very profound all of a sudden about all this stuff happening around him yeah definitely i mean yeah the ambiguity allows for so many of those you know it, it almost doesn't matter like where he was or where this you know information came from or was the priest here or there it just you know you can take it so many different ways and they're all just you know it's all really about how this guy how it gets into his head through his filter 
and it just yeah. yeah it's 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 really perfect i i the might i say it seems so fitting in its way it was a carpenter by trade in reference to dying upon the cross i think that got a pretty good chuckle out of me the first time i listened to this i'm sure i, For I thought sure. that was pretty uh heavy shit um <laughs> but it's it's great it's i to me it it's it's profound in that this guy finds it fitting and profound and that he thinks to remark upon it it also makes me wonder if this guy was like a serial electrocutor um trying to draw a comparison between <laughs> being a carpenter and dying on wood maybe it's he's the, the toaster shocker. tub killer the, the shocker tub killer. <laughs> he's electro from uh marvel's spider-man that's right he was uh he was one of ge's best engineers <laughs> one of the <laughs> greatest inventors they ever had and it drove them to madness <laughs> but i'm only 95 percent sure of that um no i think there's a lot to support that moving on like my good hand i tattooed evil across his brother's fist that filthy five they did nothing to challenge or resist you think about this little uh, nugget before we get to the next verse. Yeah, this is very reminiscent of the fantastic film, and I believe book beforehand, Night of the Hunter, um, about a man who comes to town and he has um, good and evil, ta- or sorry, love and hate tattooed on his knuckles. Is mm-hmm. classic prison imagery, um, and again, very biblical, and it draws out this character um, kind of living by. Not living by, but um, coming to the realization of this religious code. I think that this is his attempt to use religion to project blame onto things that are obviously him, this time being his hands. Um, But again, finding meaning and why things happened, he's now saying, oh, you know, this hand's good, this hand's evil. And this is largely, I I don't know where in the Bible it is, but there's um, reference to chopping off your hand if it's done wrong so that your whole body doesn't go to hell, which makes no fucking sense. But I could see someone in this situation being like, oh, shit, you know, I actually marked them. I, I labeled my hands so I know which one's bad. And he's not only blaming, um, you know, saying that one hand is evil. He's saying that it was done by the other hand. He did it himself. And um, that fucking hand didn't even stop itself from doing that, (laughs) which is next level projection. That's next level psychosis. But uh, yeah, very, very interesting uh, turn here from the character. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I I don't have really much to add to that. I mean, you, you could kind of, you know, Cain and Abel kind of, uh, crossed its brother's fist yeah um but I, i'm more interested in his little uh morality play and taking himself you know the controller of his hands and you could extrapolate that to being a god you know is the god evil it created evil people you know am i evil i have two two different hands you know it's <laughs> yes. kind of like this uh lower level version of this you know passing the buck yeah yeah exactly it's it's it's, and it's supported in old religious texts again depending on what snippets he's hearing from 
this book, if it's, if it's coming to him and he's never heard it before and he's taking it, you know, at all at face value, he's like, oh shit, well, that's it. My, my evil hand did the killing and my left hand marked it as evil. And so there you go. Well, what the fuck? What did I do? <laughs> it's, oh, it's twisted. It's weird. Uh, like, like a, some kind of prison mop. Verse four. In heaven, his throne is made of gold. The ark of his testament is stowed, a throne from which I'm told all history does unfold. Down here, it's made of wood and wire, and my body is on fire, and God is never far away. Now, as we've talked about, you know, maybe not a, a clear through line or a clear timeline here, but now we're definitely at the, the electric chair imagery. Wood and wire, body on fire. You know, God's never far away. He's making appearances. He's taking lives down here, even if he's not making the grander decisions. Um, God's presence or, yeah. or death more likely is, is, is here. Yeah, no, it's right on the other side of the door. And according to the Bible, you're about to see him. And that could <laughs> suck. That could really suck. It could blow. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking, oh, God. Wouldn't want to be this guy. Um, yeah, and in the mercy seat here, I don't think we've mentioned it yet, but uh, is the uh, thing that is on the Ark of the Covenant. Again, for anybody who has seen <laughs> Indiana Jones, you've, you've seen this thing. It's two big winged things i thought they were sphinxes as a kid but they're i believe angels um but it's supposed to be the representation of god's throne in heaven and he's drawing the comparison down here to uh the throne of judgment the throne of mercy being of course the electric chair made of wooden wire um also i think some vague allusion to jesus on the cross being you know nailed to a wooden cross and Crown of Thorns, which we often see as, as kind of barbed wire-ish um, in depictions. I, I get that imagery there. Sure, yeah. Yeah. And the Ark of the Covenant, you know, being told that the Bible is the genesis of man. And so the Ark being the Word of God is, of course, where everything comes from. Yeah. Yeah. yeah just we're, we're seeing throughout these verses uh, sort of imitate pale imitations or facsimiles of things from higher up um you know whether it's the idea of judgment or this throne um it, it literally does unfold from there yeah and it's it's all of these kind of you know bits and pieces that he's trying to nail together and it really does feel like um me trying to write an essay on the bible back in english where it was <laughs> like i i kind of read it i read the footnotes <laughs> i skimmed it and uh then just I, I didn't learn much of anything except the big talking points and that's he's just he's running through them right now he's trying to figure out what the fuck's gonna happen exactly yeah uh, trying to process this stuff before he goes um, oh. and uh yeah going going he is first five into the mercy seat i climb my head is shaved my head is wired and like the moth that tries to enter the bright eye so i go shuffling out of life just to hide in death a while in any way, I never lied. Yeah, mm. he's, ooh, he's stepping up. It's time. And again, I don't know, as you said, if this is removed from time, if he's actually sitting in the seat, um, or if he's just imagining it. I, I'm sure if I were in that position, I'd be imagining it over and over and over again. Um, but we, we now have, you know, kind of the rebirth and resurrection 
uh, talk here where he's uh, trying to enter heaven and perhaps come back out at some point, um, but always returns to the fact that he never lied. He's trying to really drive that home. He's trying to repeat again and again that, you know, he's telling the truth. And yeah, he's yet to say that he doesn't deserve what he's getting, but he keeps repeating this this idea that he has been truthful the whole time. Yeah, definitely. I, yeah, the the never lying repetition is great. He starts to sort of, you know, is that the only immoral thing you can do? No. So maybe he he's never told us a lie. Maybe in the past he never lied. You know, maybe that's why he got caught. But it, it's that's sort of irrelevant. Did he harm somebody is more relevant. Um, but um, the the stuff about this verse, it's really interesting to me. The moth that tries to enter the bright eye, you know, something that is beyond comprehension of that creature. Um, yeah. You know, he is he is like the moth trying to, you know, maybe in his last moments, he's drawn to this light and unable to ever, you know, really attain it. You know, you can't really grasp an understanding of, of what's beyond life and death uh, while being human, while being mortal. Um, yeah. And I kind of like... I don't really put a lot of stock in this reading, but to bring up the moth trying to enter the bright eye and then shuffling out of life just to hide in death a while could be some lightly Buddhist or reincarnation imagery, uh, which is a fun little thing to slip in here if that was at all intentional. But um, yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't put a lot of, into that. I just think it's kind of some interesting to hide in death a while. Like, hmm. Well, it's also, you know, it's also biblical. Jesus hid in death for three days and then popped right back out yeah, and said, point. hey, I'm not not there anymore. And <laughs> maybe he is trying to uh, draw some comparisons. As you said, you know, Jesus was a carpenter and this man was an electrician of some sort <laughs> who couldn't lie. And so they asked him, did you do it? And he said, yeah, absolutely. I cannot and tell a lie. I cannot tell a lie. Why are you arresting me? I told you the truth. I'm in a uh, toaster bathtub bandit. <laughs> I love this guy. Um, We're really ruining a beautiful song. <laughs> <laughs> We're adding no, there's no dumb questions. We're not asking questions, but. That's true. Yeah. Sean, I did want to ask what is evil? Ah, God. Well, this is going to be a five hour episode. <laughs> Okay, we'll move on. We'll move on for now. So I'm holding you to that. I did. I did want to ask at the end what innocence was, but I think we might have to skip that. Um, yes, he never lied. I love. I love the idea of the Buddhist imagery. Maybe he's hearing that shit too. Um, I think it also jibes if he's trying to remain Christ-like, as as Cave often does in his songs with you know the resurrection and uh, probably knowing that that's a special case that uh that was jesus and he's no jesus so probably still instilling fear in him yeah but uh we're we're coming up on the end here and so we have this second bridge which again is this breakdown with heavy piano um get a little bit of a break in the guitar but uh, we go back to his hands and my kill hand is called evil where's a wedding band that's good tis a long suffering shackle collaring all that rebel blood <laughs> Oh. oh, oh, love it. 
absolutely love it. You, please take us. What what is he saying here? <laughs> well, so we've got the wedding band. I think this is the first, you know, other than this whole death row thing, first sort of glimpse into you know what may have transpired. Um, knowing what we do about Cave, you know, he's got a wedding band. He's probably killed his wife. Let's just you know not beat around the bush there <laughs> it's nick cave surprise surprise it's chekhov's wedding band right like it must have some bearing on what happened um it's chekhov's cave's narrator <laughs> uh, chekhov's wife chekhov's cave's narrator's wedding band uh, <laughs> um but no and it's a long-suffering shackle coloring all that rebel blood maybe you know, without without really diving into the wedding band aspect of, of this being a long-suffering shackle because, you know, his past, this potential murder of, of his wife, maybe his, his suffering. You know, all these songs have this kind of this kind of thing. We just talked about it with Long Time Man. Coloring all that rebel blood is great. St- stemming the flow of this, this blood from his evil hand... Uh, it's rebel blood. It's not. He didn't want to want to commit. Oh yeah, yeah. crime. It's, <laughs> it's it's this is this is not my blood. This is not my beautiful rebel. house. This is. What is this rebel blood? He yeah no it's it's the very blood coursing through his veins is rebelling against what he knows to be good. It's it's this man that you know he tried he tried to integrate into. A marriage and perhaps integrate into what he felt was society and normalcy and mm-hmm. you know what is good versus what is evil and you just you can't call her all that blood blood is blood <laughs> you can't hold him back apparently yeah and then from this point we basically just got you know a bunch of you know and they do change um a bunch of iterative uh, repetitions of the chorus you know we've got the the mercy seat burning uh the mercy seat glowing the mercy seat melting any of these choruses that reference basically what we've already heard any turns of phrase in these that you're interested in kind of diving into yeah um the the head glowing and melting and boiling and all that is um clearly an indiana jones reference again (laughs) because the mercy seat in the movie indiana jones boils and glows and melts all the heads of the uh, nazis and so we we've seen this before um (laughs) in in the second iteration i think that there's an interesting paragraph or an interesting line um where he saw no proof he you know gives us a little more insight into the actual crime committed or what the charges levied against him you know if they held water or not and he says in any way i saw no proof and not a motive why um which to me really calls out perhaps his um amoral existence before this that he's glomming on so hard to trying to find good and evil and meaning around him um i thought up to this point that the guy definitely has some sociopathic tendencies where perhaps you know this just didn't occur to him before and he tried to do what he thought was right um, but really never had that drive inside of him. 
and perhaps used that lack of a motive that he just did something to do it because he felt like doing it at the time. Um, that motive perhaps kept coming up in the trial as something that was lacking. He's, he's glomming onto that as like, well, there's no reason I did it. So what the fuck do you want? Like, I, I saw I didn't, no proof. Yeah, I saw no proof. There's no, there's no reason for me to do this, obviously. He said it this whole time. Um, <laughs> which tackles the, the idea of free will. If this person really has, yes. you know, his blood itself is rebelling against everything around him and he has no free will, how is it right to punish him for that? Um, which is, this is not the last time that we'll dive into this with Cave. Absolutely. Um, be very more on the nose later on uh, <laughs> and tongue in cheek in one of my favorite songs, O'Malley's Bar. But um, yeah, we, we definitely get that from these two little divergent lines. Absolutely, um, yeah. Uh, in a way, I'm helping to be done with all this twisting of the truth. I'll just, you know, hey, I didn't see any proof. I didn't see motive. But look, let's just get it. You know, you've got it all wrong. You don't understand what I've come to understand. Let's just let's just do it. Just yeah. put me away. Just and it could also be frustration with the legal system, having to sit there, even if you know you did it, and you're saying I didn't do it, and listening to those fucking lawyers just forever, the judges going through code, trying to figure out why it is you should be killed, um, is probably itself just a frustrating exercise. And at the end of the day, it's just like, okay, fuck it. <laughs> Let's, yeah what let's stop and maybe he had a motive and they're just getting the motive wrong you know it yeah. could just be that he his name as it should be is being dragged through the mud but maybe in a way that's not representative of of what he actually did yeah which it does seem yep. like he did just throwing it out and there. i i think so i think i'm safe to pass judgment on this man <laughs> it's uh, within me to pass judgment on another and I will do yeah, it. I'll gladly do it. I'll Reckless abandon. That's <laughs> all I do. Um, anything else in here? I've got one more, but... I'm I'm scanning through. There is. It's just... It's so... There's so much that's so slight. Um, you know, the looks of disbelief is a great one. It really pops out to me when listening to it, but it's just kind of a you know, the phrasing, it's different from everything else he said. And, you know, the, like, what is there to disbelieve about what he's, you know, maybe it's just disbelief that he could do something so horrendous if he did, you know, commit a murder, um, likely of his wife. Like, I, I don't know, just, it, it's, yeah, it's one of the, the phrases that makes me really not, uh, sympathetic. Uh, one of the few phrases that really makes me not sympathetic because, you know, you can handle somebody looking at you that way if you did something this horrible, you know? I think you, yep. it's the least you deserve. Yeah, absolutely. And and the looks of disbelief, I think, um, just reinforced to me the idea that this man did something and, and he himself doesn't know why he did it. And if he is really telling the truth and saying, hey, I, I did this thing, and they're like, why'd you do it? He's like, mm -hmm. that would, I think, garner more looks what? of disbelief. <laughs> yeah, what are you talking about? Why'd you do it? Oh, ah, my blood. Um, We're taking you to the chair. <laughs> <laughs> Take <laughs> Bake them away, toys. Um, <laughs> I think that that would garner more uh, disbelief from the onlookers, from the jury, from the courtroom. Um, 
than, you know, just coming out and saying I did it and I feel really bad or whatever one would say in that situation. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think the, the only other, uh, well, yeah. Do you have anything aside from the, the final, uh, no. couplet? Nope. Just the last one. Okay. And here jump it is. On, jump on in. That's right. So we come to the end of this. It's been five minutes, five grueling minutes or four grueling minutes of repeating and repeating and repeating. Um, and the last two lines, last couplet. And anyway, I told the truth and I'm afraid I told a lie. And this, this drives home to me that the lie throughout this whole song was that he is actually pretty afraid to die. And having been introduced to religion towards the end, um, once more, if he's taking it at all seriously, that would be a really terrifying fucking thing to know that, especially Old Testament wise, that simply uh, Old Testament is great about arbitrary actions requiring arbitrary punishments. And so even if there's no motive, even if his concept of innocence is based on intent, is based on ill will, is based on whatever it is, uh, the fact that it says you're going to go to fucking hell just because you did this thing. He knows he did it, and perhaps he even admitted. He said, I told the truth. Um, but I think here it's given away that the lie itself is his his cocksureness and his fear of death. Yeah. That's my that's my reading. Yeah, I like it. I I, I think it could apply to both things, but at the, at the end there, I, I do think, being that it's at the end of the song, this is where he's specifically yeah, made a turn towards... I am afraid. Yeah. And it's the part of the the previous couplets where um, not afraid to die usually goes. And so that direct yeah. replacement is what really, really does it for me. Instead of saying, I'm not afraid to die, I'm afraid I told a lie. And I wonder, I wonder if he's even deluded himself. Maybe he has convinced himself repeating so many times that he was telling the truth. And now he's coming to the end and trying to take honest stock and the fear is that even though he believes this so strongly that maybe he lied and maybe that is what's going to do him in, in the end is, you know, mm-hmm. regardless of how he feels that really in the past, sometimes he can't remember why or what he did, um, that there is something back there that's haunting him. The sick breath at his hind is, is encroaching and, and will overtake in the last moments. A third meaning. <laughs> I say, <laughs> <laughs> yeah no I, I absolutely man yeah yeah I, that's the song that's the song that's one of the greatest songs ever written um feel pretty confident in saying that um yeah you're not the best thing ever recorded uh but it, it's so <laughs> good it's a perfect encapsulation of you know what we like about nick cave i think at this point in the podcast we're both a little weary of spousal murder or or you know that kind of thing but you know if this is your first time hearing cave that aspect is is potentially chilling especially since it's kind of hidden away you know what he did is hidden away in the song but it's just so imbued with you know the quotidian sort of banal imagery of a cup a mop going all the way up to the ark um to to uh transcendent things and just really uh putting those together in a really crazy way um 
yeah, one one of the best uh, best moments for Cave lyrically. Yeah, and if someone is coming into Cave at this point, I think it does a good job of encapsulating a lot of the subject matter and a lot of what we've wrestled with um, previously. Yeah, in in a bite sized piece, in as you said, one of the greatest songs ever written. We get immediately that seven minute condensed. Seven minutes, not the most bite sized, but yes. It's Fair all enough. it's all in one place. I agree. It's 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 a dinner deal. It's you sit down and you enjoy it. Um but as you said, it's Twelfth a lot course. of con- <laughs> <It's> coming up. <laughs> um it condenses a lot of what we've dealt with up to this point and gives you a good idea of what he's about, um, in a more refined and exploratory way than we've seen previously. And that that said, of course, don't sleep on From Her to Eternity, Firstborn is Dead, and Your Funeral. But at the same time, this is it just reinforces to me why this is such a good entry point and, and strikes me as kind of a rebirth for the band and for Cave as a lyricist. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Dead and killed and coming back, hiding in death a little bit. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's a that's a good uh punctuation mark to put on the end uh next time we'll be listening to the uh second song the grim but in its own way a much more lighthearted uh up jump the devil yes yeah uh, lighthearted is a good way it's jaunty as you said yeah it's... very extremely vile it could, could <laughs> yeah. even be a prequel to this uh song in a way yeah, no, it could be a prequel to many of Cave's villains. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, life in a song, and what a life it is. Uh, Sean, when we're not hiding in death a while, where can they find us? Well, dear listeners, of course, please, 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 please reach out. Let us know what you think of the cast. Let us know what you think of our interpretations. What are your interpretations? We want to hear, what did the mercy seat mean to you? What do you think of the last three albums? All of these things, please. Let us know your opinions, and you can do so via email, todayslessonpod at gmail.com, via Twitter, at todayslessonpod, or via patreon.com slash todayslesson if you want to throw us a few dimes for what we're doing up here. Um, And Andrew and I haven't discussed this yet in in great detail, but I do want to say, keep checking the Twitter. Follow us on Twitter. We might have some... uh, some competitions coming up, some some sweepstakes, as it were, that might give you a couple opportunities to snatch some swag, some or, uh, some right. incredible, incredible swag. Yeah, I, you'll see, you'll see what we what we end up putting up there, but it's some truly phenomenal stuff. So so please do follow us. Don't want to spoil anything just yet, but um, you know we're talking like custom podcast electric chair. <laughs> a limited run of mercy seats that you can have in your own home makes Don't, a great conversation starter do not plug them in or do <laughs> they're fully equipped just don't don't take that extra step and actually um turn them on because you might want to turn well, it away from your uh dining table just so nobody <laughs> accidentally gets all hooked up in there and uh, well, I, I have mine at the head of the table i didn't have a big chair for the guest of honor to sit in so that's where mine is and it works for, well for your just, guest <laughs> yeah of course i don't 
I don't presume to take that seat when I have someone over. But again, just don't plug it in. You should be fine. Um, all kidding aside, we've got some great uh, swag. So keep an, keep an ear out for that. Keep an eye out. Yeah, no, that's actually a good point. That was it's not a joke. We do have swag. We do have the swag. So yeah. Until next time. Uh 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 bum 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 um I am not afraid to die. I I tell the truth. I am not afraid to die. Uh that's terrible. Bye. Bye.